Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the Wham Podcast. It's an honor to host this podcast where listeners get to hear candid conversations with some amazing female leaders. We'll hear their stories, personal and professional challenges that they've overcome, how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. And we really hope that you find their stories to be as inspirational as we do. So joining me today to talk about an amazing self-made and fearless leader um, is Rosemary Truman, who is absolutely disrupting supply chains around the world. Rosemary founded a unique organization which identifies breakthrough inventions. And bottom line, she's helping entrepreneurs make their dreams come true. And as you'll see, her energy and enthusiasm are contagious. So join me in a warm welcome for Rosemary. Thank you for joining the show. Oh, I'm very delighted to be here. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. Things. So, so you know what? Tell us about. I mean, you have an amazing background from finance to management consulting, working for software giants like Oracle and IBM. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your background? Sure. My background is, as you mentioned, investment banking and strategy consulting. And basically, I was pretty singularly focused when I went from college into the workforce. I only wanted to work for two companies, either Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. And you know, I guess the background to that is that. You know, I, gr I grew up actually in a pretty humble uh, manner, and my mom's rule was you go to an Ivy League school and get a full scholarship. I'll drop you off, and I'll pick you up when you're done if, if you graduate magna cum laude. So <laughs> that was, that was uh, my starting no out point. <laughs> what? No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. And so, you know, my, my I basically just had this motto of just working extremely hard and pushing for what – I wanted to get over and over and over again, regardless of what the original answer was. So, for example, at Goldman, I mean, they told me 145 times no because they didn't hire MBAs at the time, uh, non-MBAs, non pardon me, and I only had an undergrad degree, although I was um, fortunate to graduate magna cum laude, so my mom did pick me up, <laughs> and um, had lots of degrees, um, econ, math, industrial engineering, and operations research. In any case... I wrote them a proposal, and uh, they made an exception. I, I told them that uh, I would save them $40 million in, in two years, and they only, only had to pay me 400000 a year. Um, wow. They left a zero off, and then they hired me with a nice Cylon bonus. But I was, I was pretty happy because uh, I, I got into Goldman, and I was part of their listed stock block desk, which is the desk where they trade for their own book of business and institutional sales clients. I was the first analyst hired there. But, you know, it was a wonderful educational foundation from a due diligence standpoint because that basic skill set is what um, brought me into consulting, strategy consulting. So I started strategy consulting and e-business strategy because at Goldman, part of the proposal I wrote was to put a killer app on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which would allow for straight through processing. You take a ticket, you put it through a scanner, it shows up on a touchscreen PC, the brokers on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange accept the, accept the ticket. There's character recognition. It goes up to 85 broad electronically. They accept it. It goes into the system, closed-loop system, reduces errors dramatically. And that straight-through processing was the foundation of what, you know, Oracle did for – because Oracle, you know, I became very technical at Goldman and then went to Oracle. And, uh, and the way I got to Oracle is because we switched out the database at, at Goldman for, from Sybase to Oracle because Sybase was the fastest, but it had problems such as page-level locking. The, the bottom line is that I went into e-business strategy at Ernst & Young, and then the last thing I did uh, at IBM was I ran IBM's innovation strategy practice globally based on the transformation experience I had in, you know, transforming IBM, you know, creating $16 billion of top-line revenue improvement, and then 
of course, I, I ran strategy for 50 of the top 100 companies in the world. So to answer your question, I mean, it's a very smooth transition, but of course, every single time you move from one place to another, you learn quite a lot. But generally speaking, my the base skill set that I started to learn at Goldman was due diligence and strategy, which carried me through all the way to what I do today, which is, um, you know, right now I, I run the Center for Advancing Innovation. Yeah, tell us about that. So, you know, part of what I learned in developing strategies for these large companies is that, you know, there's, there's really three kinds of growth strategy. There's Horizon 1, Horizon 2, and Horizon 3. Horizon 1 is your tactical growth. Horizon 2 is your adjacent growth. And Horizon 3 is my favorite area, which is identifying growth breakthroughs. When you identify growth breakthroughs, you're really trying to identify something that does not exist from a business model standpoint, from a product service standpoint, from an operational standpoint, that you're defining something that's net new. So you also have to size it. You know, you have to evaluate these net new items and prioritize them as well. So again, due diligence, prioritization, and then you develop the roadmap. So now you're, you have this net new thing you've identified that doesn't exist. Where do you, is there something you can start with? And what I found consistently was that there is always something you can start with. There's IP sitting on the shelf developed by somebody that could fill part of that growth breakthrough. Whatever that, whatever small component or bundle of IP could address that growth breakthrough. And just going back to, you know, the first transformation of IBM, when IBM was at negative $7 billion and it went to eight positive, positive $8 billion within two years, the, the secret sauce, if you will, for that was the IP that was monetized sitting on the shelf. And of course, a lot of operational transformation along with it. But so that's part of the background is this, this knowledge that this intellectual property sitting on the shelf could make enormous markets like Tempur-Pedic, GPS, the modern cell phone, the first cure for childhood leukemia. All that was developed by what I just mentioned was developed by NASA and the NIH. Imagine what else is out there. Right. So, right. you know, in the, in the United States, we spend $160 billion a year in taxpayer dollars. 85% of that goes to universities and hospitals, and the rest is used by our federal laboratory system to develop, you know, really breakthrough inventions, things that don't exist yet. That's, that's the whole purpose of that $160 billion. So what, what we have done at the Center for Advancing Innovation is we've systematically gone out to more than 100 institutions around the United States, 27 federal labs, 55 universities and the rest are hospitals and we um, collect if you will their intellectual property put it into a database and systematically evaluate it and then launch companies around the very best intellectual property so we work with 170,000 inventions right now which equates to about 500,000 patents and so i mentioned we start with the the ip and then i mentioned we systematically create companies out to actually advance those inventions. So over the last few years, we've launched 300 companies and we've launched, you know, I guess trained about 4,500 people. So that's what we do. We're kind of a trifecta. We so, so tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit more about these. I mean, you, how do you get access to this kind of data? And then tell us more about this, maybe give us some examples of the kinds of companies that you've helped to launch this past year. Okay. So, I was just mentioning we're, we're kind of a trifecta. We're, we're matching these inventions with entrepreneurs and then capital. And it requires a lot of data on all three levels, you know. So starting with the inventions, what we've done is we've developed software to pull inventions out of the WIPO database and the USPTO database. So we basically pull inventions out of there, put them into a, a database. 
We then augment the data using lots of other different kinds of software we've developed to pull all the most recent information out. Because when you're dealing with patents, patent, the data is old. So now you have to refresh the data. And then you have to, <laughs> you have to identify all the applications for each invention. So a NASA invention, for example, made for anti-gravity circumstances could have 10 different applications that are terrestrial. But right. then that means that your data of 170,000 inventions just um, went to, you know, 10 times that number because you have to actually evaluate each application independently. So there's a lot of data involved there, the initial data, patent data, which has to be harmonized, then the augmented data, and then we apply, we do a multidimensional segmentation analysis, and then we start applying our due diligence models. And there's obviously different due diligence models for each kind of invention. To go into the kinds of companies that we have launched over the last year, I might just start with this year, we're launching 20 supply chain companies that are extremely disruptive out of the scale challenge, because that's the model that we use to actually launch companies. We launch a global challenge accelerator. So it's about an eight to 12 month process where we source, we do you know, open innovation, we source entrepreneurs from all around the world to compete for the privilege of launching a company around the invention. So 20 of the companies are supply chain companies, which are really, you know, again, we're launching them around inventions. 25% of the inventions are from NASA and the rest are from universities and hospitals, actually universities only, I should say. The kinds of inventions that we have are, for example, robots, drones, unmanned vehicles, and so on. We have some very, very, very cool inventions and a few high-tech digital inventions as well. We have another challenge where we have running called the Brain Race, which is a challenge to defeat brain tumors to basically improve outcomes for people with brain tumors. So we'll be launching 20 companies there as well. So so those are the companies. And in the past, we've launched, as I mentioned, 300 companies, 100 are high tech, and the other 200 are life sciences oriented. So Rosemary, give us an example, if you could, of, uh, for our listeners, just what kinds of companies, I mean, I know let's, we'll get to the scale challenge because we definitely want to talk about that, but give us an example of something, just, you know, a recent company that you helped to launch or helped an entrepreneur launch. Sure. So one company is called um, Sun City Smart Tech. It is mm-hmm. a wire fault detection system. So imagine in an airplane, there's more than three miles of wire. If a wire goes bad, how do you find it? Right. It could actually make the entire plane, you know, how many times have we sat on the tarmac when they're trying to look for the problem for the, with the airplane? I know that I've probably spent a few weeks of my life on the tarmac, but um, <laughs> traveled a lot. <laughs> but what this is, is it's a prognostic and a diagnostic. So it's a prognostic. It can predict when a wire will become faulty. It can detect when the wire is faulty. And it can reroute the power and or data to the location that it's required. So it's a very powerful invention. I'll give you one other example, which is one of my favorites. It, I could talk, talk about nano drones too, but I have a lot of favorites in my brain. Well, one's called the Razor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to the Razor. I'll, I'll talk about the kite. So imagine a piece of fabric that is about three inches high and a quarter of an inch thick. And this piece of fabric is a big, big ribbon. You know, it's a 10 to 15 meters of ribbon. This ribbon is placed in the sky, you know, 10 to 30,000 feet up into the air. And it's placed into the sky based on where it can capture the most wind. 
so it, it just basically ruffles around like a ribbon. It's attached to guide wires, and on the ground, there's a motherboard with a whole bunch of sensors. The motherboard and sensors position the fabric or this kite in the air optimally where it can capture the most wind. There's piezoelectric material within the fabric, and so it can generate anywhere from 10 to 100 times more than a windmill, and it's a 1,000 times less. Plus, you can move it around. You know, it, you can transport it to different locations. You can't do that with a windmill. So imagine you can take it to a disaster relief site where there is no energy, and you can generate right. it. You can, and it generates energy anywhere from three to ten times more efficiently as well. Wow. So that's, and this is a technology that was already existing with NASA? Yep. It existed with NASA. We launched three companies around it. That's amazing. And so it's not like technology and then matching right entrepreneurs, but is that, is that correct? That's mm -hmm. correct. And we do that through a challenge model. So literally, we teams will compete for the privilege of launching a company around now, what the if invention. they have their own invention and they want to bring that to the table? Do you work with them on that? We, we absolutely do. We will allow that in our challenges, we have people come in and they pick one of our inventions. But if they have something to add to the challenge, for example, it's the scale challenge, supply chain and logistics enterprises. If they have something that they believe is disruptive, in, they can bring it into the challenge. And um, in, in both circumstances, they can participate in our accelerator program, which is extremely robust. It's eight months long, 40 classes, 12 company building exercises, and 16 weeks of hot seats. So it's an incredible opportunity for people who want to learn the business of engineering, if you so will. So these or are the folks that you're helping, and all they do is they, they come to the table saying, we want to go with this invention and help us to figure it out? Yep, that's right. Mm -hmm. we, we want people who are willing to do the hard work and are willing to do, because it's, it's certainly very difficult to be an entrepreneur, but are also willing to team with others. We uh, have a model, we require a multidisciplinary team because it really is all about the team. So there's usually three to five people on the core team and three to five people that are mentors <laughs> or advisors. So everybody who's listening, come into our scale challenge, be a mentor, advisor, or bring a team. We need a, a small army so, to, to make it work. So, so for, for the well, challenge, we, the scale we, challenge, and I want to put that out there too for our listeners. So this is how long do people have to get in touch with you and look at the different industries that you've selected? Well, people should come in as soon as possible right now. They have until the end of September. So there is time to come into the challenge. We have a rolling entry process. So as teams come in, we allow up to 10 teams per invention. So that's 200 teams. So as teams come in, the rolling entry process, they are counted towards one of the inventions. So come in now because we still have room, but it's, it's filling up fast. Scalechallenge.org. Just go to the website. Now you're you'll working find with it. the Walton Family um, Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to have opportunity to partner with the Walton Family Foundation. So, yes, they are very interested in developing the next generation, if you will, of supply chain and logistics enterprises. And they want to plant 20 new companies in northwest Arkansas. We'll have companies in other locations as well, but mm -hmm. they want to boost that ecosystem. And Alice Walton is truly a visionary. You know, as part of this challenge, the scale challenge, it is truly a first of a kind. We've launched, you know, 100 high-tech companies before, but because of Alice Walton's vision, you know, she really is a visionary in art. She wants to have an artist on every high-tech team because all of these inventions in the scale challenge are high-tech inventions, very high-tech. So bring in your team, but also look, look around for an, 
an artist. And, and really, you think about art very broadly. It could be a musician. It could be performance art. It could be someone who's a designer. You know, we're looking for all kinds of artists so as well that creative for this challenge. So tell us exactly just in, in working with the Walton Foundation and the, the challenge itself, what are the criteria? What are the key criteria that you look for when you're building or saying, wow, this is an industry that is going to be a great avenue for our startup? Well, in, in terms of selecting the inventions, you know, we went through 16,000 inventions wow. to get the 20 that are in the challenge. So we have a very robust due diligence model. They know I've been doing it due diligence for more than 25 years. So the trade secret, you know, our biggest one has 158 variables in terms of the inventions itself. But in terms of how we look for winners in the challenge, you know, it really is all about the team and the work that they do. And I know it sounds a little bit perhaps cliche because everybody always says the jockey, not the horse, but it really, truly, it's really true. But it's deeper than just the team. You know, the, is it a multidisciplinary team? We create multidisciplinary teams. You know, obviously, teams can come in with their own selection of people, but we, you know, based on this project we did with Kaufman Foundation on why do startups fail, what we found was the number one reason for failure was not lack of capital, not the invention. Really? It's always the team. So that's why, you know, the, the average team size in our challenges is about 10 people because of the diversity required on the team. You need the business background. You need the scientific or engineering background. You need legal participation. Obviously, artists have to be on every team. And so we look for 30 different capabilities That's on the amazing. team. That's amazing. I mean, what a, talk about a challenge for you. And so, Rosemary, talk about, I mean, do we see a lot of women in startups? Talk about how, I mean, what is the role or, and, and how do you see women represented in this effort? Uh, well, in our past startups, 60% of our oh. startups have been co-founded by women and 80% have been co-founded by minorities. Women really should be in 100% of our companies. But I guess when I see what, you know, women's role, you know, right now, you know, if you look at the percentage of women in STEM right now, it's 25% in the workforce and declining. Why and that? that's, Why is um, that, Rosemary? you know, we, women are, you know, I believe that it's because there's a belief that there's a high bar to entry you know, it's so interesting, this imposter syndrome, believe it or not, and I, I know the listeners will not believe this, but I never even had heard of it before. <laughs> you know, I I did a thesis on why do women choose lower wages when I was in, hadn't even graduated yet. That was my first thesis that I did. And that was because I believed that sincerely, if a woman wants to make as much money as a man, they can. And I decomposed the wage gap between females and males and basically found that 97% of the wage gap is explained by preferences for job characteristics. So, you know, that could be implicit or explicit. But I believe that there is a perceived high bar to enter, and that bar cannot be achieved by women, which is completely that, untrue. Is that the imposter um, syndrome? That, can so, you just define that for us if you could? Yeah, the, so the imposter syndrome is kind of an internal voice, if you will, that basically people say, I can't do it. And when they actually do achieve something, they believe that it's an imposter. They are an imposter. They're not really achieving something, which is, is mind-boggling to me. But women have that much more Why? than men, Why do you think that's apparently. I believe it's, you know, part of how people are raised. You know, I was, I was raised by a mom with six kids. You know, my father died young. And so, you know, my mom did everything. And 
So therefore, I thought I will do everything, you know. And when my mom said do something, believe it, I, I did it. <laughs> and so, I spent my summers writing letters to prevent sand mines because my mom was the mayor of the town. And by the way, that, that's pretty mind-boggling too because we were the first Catholics that ever moved into this tiny little town of West Virginia. And then she became the mayor because you know, uh, which is amazing. She played organ and piano and all these people, all the you know, churches around there. And, and then they made, she made her the mayor as a result. But, you know, so I prevented sand mines. You know, I wouldn't say that I did by myself, of course, I just wrote the letters. But I think a lot of it has to do with how you are brought up. You know, and I, I wouldn't say that, I think we have a lot. So what do we, do what do women need time. to do to break out of that? Let's say if you're, you know, if, if you're, you're already feeling it. How do you break out of this, you know, this negative syndrome? I think it's it's about just mm-hmm. creating goals and also creating a strategic plan to address those goals. So goals from many perspectives, industriousness, for example, you know, think about different characteristics of yourself and then determine how you want to improve each of those different characteristics. You know, one thing I would encourage people to do is a self-authoring program by Jordan Peterson. It's very powerful where you examine all these different characteristics of yourself and you determine, you know, what is your future going to look like for each of the characteristics that you have? So I believe you have to work on yourself. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And and look, not everyone has a mother like you do. Yeah, I was very fortunate. So I think I know the answer to my next question then. Growing up, who were your biggest influencers? Yeah, it was my, my mom was definitely the biggest influencer. And then, you know, after that, I would say that Nick D'Onofrio was my biggest influencer was early that? in my career. Nick D'Onofrio was number two mm-hmm. at IBM for 45 years. And I worked with him twice. I worked with him at the beginning of my career during the first transformation of for IBM when IBM was at negative $7 billion. And we turned it around to positive $8 billion. And he remembers my sitting beside him with my computer and showing him numbers that illustrated how to make up this $15 billion that needed to be made up. And uh, and then later in my career, when I launched IBM's innovation strategy practice globally and, uh, and grew it very, very rapidly. So Nick has been a positive influence in my career wow, for more than 20 years. And if you could, I don't know yeah. if you can say this, but what's the best advice that you ever got and how did it change you? I think the best advice I ever got was be a good person. <laughs> be honest and be open Uh and be transparent. So, you know, if you're forthright, I'll be forthcoming. What I mean by that is, you know, if someone tells me there's a problem now versus six months from now, I can help. I can help fix the problem. If I don't know the problem exists, then I can't help. And and I, I guess another thing is that, you know, I really do like to help people. It's important to help people because when I, what I want people to do is when I help them, I want to remember them to remember what I did so that right, they will help someone else. Most people will not help. They just lock the door. And I would encourage everybody in this podcast not to be that person. Be open, be honest, be transparent. I think that's the best advice I ever got. And it seems very common sense. But absolutely, no, you're right. And it sounds like, I mean, you're living a life of service right now. I mean, talk about giving back, helping all of these entrepreneurs, you know, whether they're coming to you with a product or whether or not you're giving them the product to launch. I mean, that's, that's an amazing service that you're giving. Yeah, I know. I, I always think to myself, 
you know, I could go back to IBM, make, make uh, these big companies a lot more money. You know, I mentioned I did strategy for 50 of the Fortune 100s and made a lot of companies a lot of money doing growth strategy and transformation. But, you know, really what we're doing now, and I say we, my team, you know, I couldn't do anything without my team. I'm, I'm very blessed to have a fabulous team is, you know, we are making an impact on the world. You know, we have three unicorns out of the 300 companies we've launched. And those would never have seen the light of day. I've been told that over and over and over again by the, the people who are leading these companies. And I'm just uh, delighted yeah. and thrilled to see well, them. Well, I'm going to encourage every listener out there, if you are an entrepreneur thinking about being one, you definitely need to go to uh, Rosemary's site. It's the scale, www.scalechallenge.org. Rosemary, I assume all the information will be there. And it's, um, I mean, how, how difficult is the application process? Oh, it takes about okay. 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it takes about 10 minutes. We want people to enter. So we make a, a very low barrier to entry. And then what we do during the first phase is we work with you directly to help you build your team, to help you succeed. And, you know, and also we will train you. You know, so we're going to give you the invention. We're going to give you the training. We're going to give you the mentorship. And at the end of the day, you can create the company if you want to. And because then we're going to put you in front of investors oh, and you're going to raise really some money. That is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Thank you. I mean, thank you in advance for all that you're doing here. And I, I hate to break off here, but I know others can go to the, the website and we're at the end of our show. But Rosemary, I want to thank you so much for sharing your excellent insights and for, you know, for everything that you're doing for women and men. Thank you for the opportunity to share with the listeners today and, and join in the conversation. Great, I'm, great. I'm really and grateful. For our listeners out there, if you are interested in learning more about the Center for Advancing Innovation, in particular, the Scale Challenge, go to www.scalechallenge.org. Ten minutes is uh, pretty easy. Get the process started, and Rosemary and her team will help mentor you and coach you from there. So goodbye for now, and I hope to see a lot of entries as a result of this, Rosemary, and we'll loop back with you after to hear how everything's going. All right, awesome. thanks. I look forward and to everybody it. out there, we'll see you on our next program. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>